0: This is the story of two young American students traveling through England on the night of the full moon. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? Could be a lot of things. Fate let one live. That lunatic must have been a very fierce fellow. Wasn't a lunatic. What? A wolf. Oh, be serious, would you? And now everything is changing. 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 John Landis, the brilliant young director of Animal House and the Blues Brothers, has turned a classic tale of terror into something new. Something different. Excuse me. A naked American man stole my balloon. I'm a werewolf. Can werewolf in London. Something different.
1: Hey, everyone, I'm Karina. I'm Emily. And this is The Nameless Dead. Today we're going to be discussing a very famous case. If you were alive in England in the early 80s, you probably even remember it. This case is called the Mad Dog in Piccadilly Circus, or, as it has become known to conspiracy theorists and fans of the supernatural, an American werewolf in London. Despite being famous and widespread, it's surprisingly difficult to find information on this case. It's like everyone wanted to forget it as soon as it happened. The case is also very complicated. The serial killer at the center of the case, David Kessler, is the type of person we all should be even more afraid of. A white, privileged, American college kid. David was experiencing a mental break throughout the time of the murders. It was some sort of identity crisis that manifested in a variety of ways, but most importantly for our story, he was convinced he was a werewolf. And, trigger warning, for uncouth language, which of course will bleep out, ableist language, and references to cross-dressing, taken as evidence of mental illness, alongside things that very clearly were actually evidences of mental illness. It was a cold evening in Yorkshire when David Kessler and his best friend, Jack Goodman, stopped off at the Slaughtered Lamb Pub on their backpacking trip across the UK. This pub is notoriously hostile to outsiders, both police and college boys, which may be why the boys left without finishing their drinks. We don't know what occurred in the pub, but we do know that the Slaughtered Lamb's patrons were the last people to ever see Jack Goodman alive. The official story is as follows. Once the boys left the pub, they quickly got lost amongst the moors. Once lost, they were attacked by an escaped lunatic who murdered Jack and maimed David. The local police and their shotguns came along just in time to save David's life. Either the police or the townspeople took it upon themselves to clean and dress the unconscious David's wounds before sending him off to a London hospital.
0: Why would some random people clean and dress wounds? I have no idea. The
1: only thing I can think is is maybe they were worried about him being able to survive long enough for the ambulance to get there. It was really far outside of the city. Um, maybe it's the next level of
0: putting pressure on the wound until the ambulance arrives. That's true, but even so, you'd think there would have been some sort of... Note or a medical record passed along? Right, or anything. Anything at all. So my bigger question is, how did these boys get so lost? Weren't there roads they could have been following? Wouldn't they have had a a plan for somewhere to stay that night? And you you would assume so, but it seems as though they did have a road that they
1: wandered off into the moors from, and no plans for where they were going or where they're going to stay. I think it's just a privileged American view of the world. Like, we'll just get a hotel. Won't be a problem.
0: (laughs) Everything will probably just work out because it has for most of our lives. Harder to do in rural northern England than most places. And then how do we know that the boys didn't finish their drinks at the pub?
1: Well, initially, none of the patrons of the pub wanted to talk to anybody at all. Like I said, they were not welcoming to police or college boys or anyone else who went there. However, this happened in 1981 and it's been a little while. And over time, the story around this murder has built up. So While it's not confirmed that they didn't finish their drinks, it is believed based on stories after the fact that they didn't finish their drinks. But, I mean, really, it's probably just for the drama. Three weeks passed before David awoke from his coma. Despite what sounds like an open-and-shut case, David immediately got a visit from two Scotland Yard detectives, Inspector Velez and Sergeant McManus. This could also be explained by the international nature of the incident, that Jack was an American student killed on foreign land. Which would also explain why David also got a visit from a representative from the American Embassy during this time. David's doctor, Dr. J.S. Hurt also found some inconsistencies in the official story once David was awake and talking. The damage inflicted on David's body was so severe that it's difficult to believe that one single average man inflicted all of it. The doctor was also surprised to hear that David had not been seen by another doctor prior to his arrival at the hospital, considering how David's wounds had been treated and bandaged. And why did that happen? We don't know. Upon waking, David also contradicted the official report by insisting that he was attacked by a wolf, rather than a man. This would be more fitting with the injuries he sustained. However, as his mental health begins to unravel more and more in the following days, his version of events become less and less trustworthy. As Dr. Hirsch's suspicions grew, he decided to do his own bit of investigating. He took a ride out to the slaughtered lamb in Yorkshire. Like David and Jack before him, Dr. Hirsch found the patrons of the bar to be less than welcoming to outsiders, but the doctor was convinced he could win them over with his gregariousness. After convincing the patrons that he wasn't police, the locals at the bar told Dr. Hirsch that they didn't know anything about the murder. Eventually, the doctor gave up, but on his way out, one of the locals stopped him. The man told Dr. Hirsch that the boy, meaning David, was in danger and was going to change. Going to change? What does that mean? I, I don't know. Um, these, this is one of the things that fans of the idea that David actually did change into a werewolf uh, love to latch onto. Because it sounds so ominous. And even at the end of the case,
0: even this many years later, nobody really knows what the guy was talking about. Maybe he was just a deranged local citizen. Maybe. Or maybe he did it for the drama, too. Maybe this town, maybe this pub is just really dramatic. So we don't actually believe that bar patrons knew nothing, do we? Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. Um, We know that they saw the boys
1: before Jack was murdered. And we know that this is a very small town that they were in. There's no way that they don't know anything. They obviously just didn't want to talk about it.
0: So why would his doctor take the time, either on his day off or on a working day, to drive all the way to this pub in remote Northern England?
1: I have no idea why he would go to the slaughtered lamb. He he maybe, nope, I have no idea. Maybe he took a special interest in David for some reason, or maybe he thought it
0: would help him in the future. People are strange. I mean, we know that NHS is a pretty decent health system, but that's above and beyond. (laughs) So, I can't help wondering, where were David's parents in all this? I mean, if they can afford to send their son on this extravagant trip across Europe, could they not afford to come visit him when he's, you know, lying grievously wounded in the hospital or, you know, medevac him home? this is another question
1: i just don't have an answer for we know that they knew about everything that had happened even though david was in a coma because it was pretty big news and also jack and david had grown up together so their parents still lived in the same town and by the time david woke up jack's funeral had already occurred not only did they not come and visit him but for the entirety of the story They never reach out to him. There's no specific references
0: to his parents. He had to have been very lonely. I wonder if that helped influence his deteriorating mental state.
1: Yeah, that shouldn't be counted out. And considering Jack and David grew up together, they were very close friends. And it's a very traumatic loss that David must have gone through in a foreign country with Seemingly nobody from home
0: reaching out to him. All alone, and he lost his best friend.
1: Yeah. Back at the hospital, David was showing an overall improvement in his condition, with some concerning symptoms. In addition to showing a dwindling interest in food, David Kessler was immediately plagued by nightmares. Though no one at the hospital knew it at the time, his behavior quickly escalated into full-blown hallucinations, primarily of his recently deceased friend, Jack Goodman. Hospital nurses would overhear him having full one-sided conversations with Jack while alone in his room. You know the old adage that quote-unquote crazy people don't know that they're crazy? Well, David started questioning his mental health quickly. It was the people around him who didn't take him seriously. They chalked it up to post-traumatic stress disorder, trauma. They convinced themselves that David was mentally sound and whatever instability he was facing was a part of the healing process. It was around this time that David started telling people he was a werewolf. David also became enamored with one of the nurses at the hospital, Alex Price, and became increasingly aggressive in his pursuit of her. He would refuse to eat unless she spoon-fed him. He would insist that she keep watch by his bed throughout the night. He would even feign sleep and kiss her when she would check on him. Wow. What a creep. Either out of reciprocation for David's feelings or out of pity, Alex invited David to stay with her after he was released from the hospital. Now, nurses don't get time off just because they have an ex-patient on the verge of a mental breakdown staying with them. So the next night, Alex worked an overnight shift, leaving David all alone in her flat. That night, London saw six separate murders taking place all across the city. A Hampstead Heath couple happened to be throwing a dinner party that night. Included in their guest list was a young, engaged couple by the names of Harry Berman and Judith Browns. Shortly before the party was scheduled to begin, the hostess heard a ruckus outside the back of the home. Fearing it was hooligans and concerned for the safety of her guests, she sent her husband out back to investigate. The host was too late to save the young couple, but just late enough to save himself. Police believe the man went out back just after the murderer had fled, leaving Harry and Judas' mangled bodies in his wake. Around midnight, a group of homeless men gathered at the piers to share a fire and smoke some cigars. These men were longtime friends and went by the names Alf, Ted, and Joseph. The next morning, when their bodies were found, police discovered that their murders had been frantic and right out in the open. Lastly, sometime after the tube had stopped running, a husband and father, Gerald Bringsley, was still in Tottenham Court Road tube station. It's not entirely known why he was in the station so late, but we know there was nothing sinister going on. That is, until he encountered his killer. Gerald was quickly suspicious of whoever his killer was. The murderer ended up having to chase him through the maze-like station before eventually leaving his mangled body on the escalator exit. The only fortuitous thing about some of these murders is that they took place in locations used early in the morning such as the docks and the rail line. Police were quick on the scene, though they were very tight-lipped about the investigation, advising the public not to worry. The circumstances were unusual, and there is no immediate cause for alarm, was the official statement to the public. They did, however, confirm that cannibalism was involved in every case. Cannibalism? Cannibalism. All of the victims were partially eaten, is what they told the press.
0: Wow could they tell by what? No, it seems as
1: though the bodies were left in such a terrible state that they couldn't really tell. They assumed they just assumed it was cannibalism.
0: Wow. So that does presume that, you know, no no creature killed them. If if it's cannibalism, that's that's people eating people it certainly is. So was there anything unusual or strange about that night in question it was it was about a month after the initial attack it was and if you're
1: asking if there was a full moon i I am asking there was which is again a reason that people love to believe the werewolf story um but i think the most unusual part was that
0: david was in london and was recovered and conscious. And this was his first night, unsupervised and out of the hospital. Exactly. So what do we know now about these murders as opposed to what they knew then at the time? Honestly, not much.
1: Police generally withhold information to make sure that they're not getting false confessions. But in this case, everything happened so quickly. The end result of it all was so obvious um, that like I said, it's as though as soon as it happened, everyone just wanted to forget it. All I can say is that if this had happened in America, it would have been remarkably different in terms of what we now know. In the wee hours of the morning, Alex Price came home from work to an empty flat. This was because David was at the London Zoo. At the London Zoo in the wee hours of the morning? At the London Zoo in the wee hours of the morning. Rather than going on an early morning run, David had decided to go on an early morning streak. Streak, like naked? Like
0: naked. In the London Zoo. Wow. I mean, Americans are weird sometimes, but they're generally a bit too prudish for naked streaking through the city of London. I mean, isn't it the most college frat boy thing you've ever heard?
1: Go and visit a big city and immediately go streaking.
0: I mean, did he even have shoes on?
1: He didn't even have shoes on. It must have been really painful. (sighs) So he started off the day by exposing himself to an elderly lady in the park. He then hid behind a bush and lured a six-year-old boy over to him with a promise of money. Wow, creep alert. He exposed himself to the boy, stole the little boy's balloons, and then fled the scene. Uh. The next time David was spotted, he was waiting at a bus stop wearing only a woman's bright red coat and no shoes. Wow. Just, wow. He must have made it back to Alex's flat, because the next time David was seen, he was seen with her. In Trafalgar Square, David approached a local police officer, confessed to the murders, and demanded to be arrested. When the officer dismissed him, believing it to be a joke, David began ranting.
0: Queen Elizabeth is a man!
1: Prince Charles is a faggot! Winston Churchill was bullshit.
0: That's enough. No! David, government. please! Shakespeare's French! Fuck! Shit! Cut! Shit! Come on, that's enough. Hey, David, please! Who is this person? If you don't stop this disturbance, I shall arrest you. That's what I want you to do, you moron! He's
1: very upset. His friend was killed. Will you shut up? It's right, that's quite enough. Come on, about your business. Fuck you, come on. After speaking with the police officer, David ran off into traffic, leaving Alex alone in the park. From here, we have pretty much an entire day in which David was unaccounted for. This is when the majority of people believe David obtained the dog. The dog? He had a dog? He appeared to have a dog near the end of this story. A large, black, somewhat vicious dog. Wow. This is one of the big mysteries about this case. We don't know where he encountered the dog in the middle of London, and we don't know how he was able to ingratiate himself to it so quickly, and also get it to follow his every command, which become very aggressive as the story continues. What we do know about David's day is he made a collect call from a payphone to his family home in America and spoke with his younger sister. And we know he ended his day in a pornographic cinema, watching a picture titled, See You Next Wednesday. The box office attendant at the theater didn't see a dog when David walked in. She would have stopped him if she had, because we all know puppies aren't allowed in porno movies. But due to the structure of the box office window, she easily could have missed a dog. But like I said, she doesn't believe that she did. David was only in the screening for approximately 20 minutes before the cinema employees heard screaming coming from the theater. The employee who went to check on the theater that David was in never came back out. Police were drawn to the cinema by the box office attendee hysterically screaming for help from a mad dog loose in the theater. A single police officer entered the theater to find a sight that still haunts him to this day. Inside, this officer found the mauled bodies of five men collapsed in the darkness. It didn't take him long to find the mad dog, crouched over and eating one of the bodies of its victims. The officer rushed outside and pulled down the metal roll-up door in an attempt to contain the dog. The cops called for backup and attempted to physically hold the door against the raging beast. A crowd of onlookers was growing, despite police orders for everyone to step away from the door. Police had just managed to clear the crowd when the dog broke through the metal door and attacked Scotland Yard Inspector Velez, who had just arrived on the scene, beheading him. What follows is one of the largest and most fatal accident scenes Piccadilly Circus has ever seen. At the end of the dog's rampage, Piccadilly Circus was filled with 10 wrecked cars, one wrecked bus, a wrecked motorcycle, and a ton of fatalities. Some of these fatalities were caused by the severity of the wrecks plus the 80s trend of not wearing seat belts as often as we do today. Some incidents were so gruesome they're worth mentioning. One person was thrown through the window of a double-decker bus and was then run over by a car as he was laying in the street. A car hit a couple and the woman crashed through the glass window of a bank. A police officer ended up physically pinned between two cars. The street looked like a war zone. There were people bleeding in the road. There were shouts and screams. Everything was sheer chaos. Officers were eventually able to corner the dog in a dark alley in Winchester Walk. Police attempted to secure the street until the armed officers arrived, but London citizens seemed intent on putting their lives at risk. So all the police energy went into holding back citizens for running to their deaths until the armed officers show up. Once the big guns do arrive, they break through the crowd and take aim, just as one woman is able to break through the barricade. Alex Price. Alex runs down to the end of the alleyway, crying out for David. She later said that she felt if she could just get through to David, he would relinquish his hold on the mad dog and she could save his life. But when the dog lunges at Alex, police officers open fire. The dog actually escapes, but police do hit David, who dies in that alleyway, naked, with two gunshots to the abdomen. To this day, no one knows what happened to his mad dog.
0: Why was he naked again? I mean, that's obviously a strange first question in response to all this, but, I mean, does this guy have nothing better to do than kill people while streaking naked through the streets of London? You know, what we've seen from serial killers in the past is that
1: they have patterns that they follow over and over and over again. And I guess being naked was the way that David liked to murder people. There's usually a a sexual component in some way, shape, or form to a lot of serial killers. So I guess it's just the next obvious extension to do such things naked.
0: That checks out, I guess. So, was the mad dog ever seen again?
1: Not that we know of, uh, which is especially strange in the streets of London. Um, Our best guess is that he left London, and he was not mad, but
0: following David's commands. Wow, for David to have trained such an obedient beast is just impressive. So... What is wrong with Alex Price? Her taste in men, it's just it's lacking. I gotta <laughs> say. There were so many red flags that she just blazed past in this situation. Taking a patient home, one who's obviously still still in severe distress. Mm. Yeah, I I have questions about
1: her self-preservation as well. I mean, she ran in front of a line of police holding up guns also she seems to have never taken David's concerns about his mental health seriously it's as though
0: she just thought he was joking the whole time right and that's one thing to do perhaps in a friendship or relationship albeit it's a bad thing to do but also as his nurse like you should be tuned in to what your patient is telling you I would think so
1: As far as we know, Alex Price went on to live a perfectly normal life after this incident. I'm sure it was incredibly traumatic. Having someone that you just... Finding out that someone that you just met is a serial killer. And to an extent, she helped enable him without realizing it. Oh, she did. There are so many strange things in this story. It's hard to know where to start and where to end. Alex Price, despite all of the bad decisions she made, seems to be one of the people making better decisions in this whole story. Huh.
0: That is that is true.
1: Like, at least she didn't um, leave the road in a strange town in the middle of the night in the middle of nowhere. Right. Like the boys did to begin with. Mm-hmm. And at least she didn't take it upon herself to privately investigate a story of one of her patients although she did bring him home I
0: don't know honestly I don't know who made the worst decisions in this story but yeah bringing home a patient who's just been released from the hospital and then leaving him without help alone in a city in an apartment that he's unfamiliar with that's that seems highly unwise not to mention leaving him alone with all of your worldly possessions is someone right. you don't know, right? Just because you've, you know, given someone an IV drip doesn't mean there's some great level of trust now enshrined between you. I do.
1: I do have one explanation, which might be helpful. Apparently, David was real cute. Ah, hmm mm. we've all made that mistake. Maybe not with a serial killer, but we've all made that mistake.
0: Hopefully not with a serial killer. <laughs> so, do we consider the theory that David was a werewolf? It's crazy, but I think
1: I think I think that's getting into the creepypasta realm <sighs> of the internet. <laughs> I mean, it's fun to think about. Is the answer? Sure. And I think that that's why people latch onto this story. So much. Um, There are so many things that line up conveniently with the idea that he actually is a werewolf. But people saw a dog. There's lots of complaints about a mad dog. Mm. And people also saw David. And there's no in between. Right. It seems to be whenever the dog was attacking people, David was somewhere nearby. Even though we we don't always know his location. I mean, if anything, the end of the story proves that that mm-hmm. the dog got away, but David died, and we had we the police
0: had his body to prove that. Right, and it could just be highly coincidental that these uh, his his murder streak happened on a full moon.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, I think that all just happened to time out like I said there's so many things that line up that really lend itself that really lend themselves to this mythology but at the end of the day do werewolves even theoretically transform back into their human form when they die oh we don't know that in some stories it seems like they do right some well in in a lot of stories it seems like they don't I don't know Either way, werewolves don't exist. Obviously not. We don't have we have a couple of delightful stories, but no solid evidence.
0: Mhm. This episode was written and hosted by Karina McKeon, with co-hosting by Emily Shirley. Our editor and producer is Derek Adams, and sound and music design was done by Ian Ennis.
1: Blue moon.